Welcome to Pete's Property Podcast, brought to you by Buyers Buyers and hosted by Pete Wargent, buyers agent, finance and real estate expert, and all-round property guru, plus published author. Join Pete for 30 minutes as he chats all things property with a new guest each week. Learn practical tips from the movers and shakers in the property industry and well-known personalities sharing their property journeys. G'day, welcome to this week's episode of the Pete Wargent Property Pod. I'm totally excited this week to have Ben Kingsley on the show, founder and MD of Empower Wealth and of course the co-host of Australia's most successful property finance and money management podcast with, I always lose track of this, but 16 million downloads, the property couch. Uh, Ben, welcome. It's great to have you on. Pete, love being here, mate. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Yeah, well, uh, as we were just chatting before we came on, I actually came on the the property couch two or three years ago. And uh, every every time I check up on it, it seems to have another million downloads. So it's going pretty well (laughs) for you guys. For those who aren't familiar if you've never heard the property couch ben is the founding director of empower wealth also the chair of the not-for-profit property investors council of australia also very well qualified in the space um a qualified property investment advisor and real estate licenses across five states in australia and also qualified with the diploma in finance and mortgage broking management and of course one of the leading commentators in the property investing, lending, and money management space. Ben, is that a fair coverage there? I, I could probably talk oh, I, th- I think we've done enough. Point. I think we can move on and <laughs> and talk about the topics of the day. But yes, I've obviously when you know when you talk about the business, it's a it's a large advisory firm, so we we have multiple facets in that. But I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yes, actually, we'll we'll cover that actually as we go through. So tell us a bit before we kick on to talk about Empower and what you're doing there. Uh, tell us a bit about your background. Are you a Victorian originally and whereabouts did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in a suburb in the northern suburbs of Melbourne on the city fringes called Bandura, or as I like to refer to it as Fundura. Yeah, so I had a, you know, sort of middle-class upbringing opportunity to travel to the Murray River on on many occasions. My folks had a holiday home up there and and so and just you know grew up going to public school and, and doing all the things that you do uh when you're uh, when you grow up in a great country like Australia. Sounds pretty idyllic. So how did you go from that background? What what actually drew you into finance? Because I'm thinking back through my journey, it was kind of like get to towards the end of uni, and I was thinking, oh shit, I've got to do uh, something with this degree, <laughs> and then uh, kind of ended up <laughs> like a lot of people with an accounting qualification. But how did how did you actually land on a career in finance? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, so I studied obviously the classics, the, you know, the commerce. I did the accounting, economics, uh, maths, a you know, sort of background through HSC, and then where I where my pivot came was my my dad worked for ANSET for for many years. Those of you who were born recently, ANSET was a previous airline, <laughs> um, and and so I grew up sort of around the, the the tourism industry and the airline industry. So at the time, um, you know, I looked at what I wanted to do, and uh, I was looking at um, tourism as potentially a career opportunity. And there were some new courses coming out. There wasn't any degree in tourism at the time, so. I settled for an associate diploma of business in travel and tourism, and and so that uh, mysteriously led me to um, to finding a, a great job um, at Hamilton Island Resort. So I had the best job in the world uh, for many years on Hamilton, and also being based out of Sydney. So I 
my job was to basically wine and dine travel agents um, and build the holiday packages that people um, holidayed on. And I was the uh, ended up sort of moving through from a conference organiser on Ireland to then doing that work as a sales rep and then becoming the National Sales and Marketing Manager of Hamilton Island, which was, as I said, it's a dream job. Um, you know, when you're young and you're being able to fly up to the island every second weekend and spending time on the Great Barrier Reef and, and uh, you know, taking people to our signature restaurants. So it was just a, an absolute, uh, you know, ball of the time. And I, I really loved that time. And then I uh, moved across uh, to a company called Voyages Hotels and Resorts and and was the National Sales and Marketing Manager for Ayers Rock, Kings Canyon, Alice Springs, Cape Tribulation, uh, Wildman Wilderslow, so different resorts around Australia. So I, I very much fell into experiential tourism for our big integrated resorts across the country. And that was, again, a wonderful sort of 12 years coming out of uh, uni or, or um, TAFE at the time. Pivoted that story was I didn't really want to go and work in hotels, so that sort of then said, well, where do, what do I do? So I applied for a job in Dubai in one of the biggest integrated resorts over there. And I actually missed out on that job, got down to the final two. But because of most of the events occurred through German and businesses coming out of Europe, I didn't have German as a second language. So I missed that job. And then I needed to really think about what I was going to do. Now, I'd always taken an interest in personal wealth creation. That was something that I always wanted to do. My family didn't go without, but money was always debated heavily in our household. And I thought, I never really want to be in a household where I have to worry too much about my financial position. So that sort of led me to, you know, investing in shares in my young years and then sort of being an amateur and novice and then starting to go to all of the different events and reading all the books and doing all the, you know, that piece. And so with that as a backdrop, I then decided, all right, well, maybe my future is in, you know, sort of becoming a broker and and then working through and doing financial services um, to help other people invest in property and those type of things. So that is the origin story in terms of being able to uh, to to play that out. And I was really passionate about helping other people. Um, you sort of do that in in sort of taking travel agents and teaching them how to sell your pay five, stay seven, or kids eat, you know, stay play and eat for free, or your, you know, red center explorer type holidays. It's always education and then basically helping people to uh to experience those things. So that that's the origin story to sort of get us to where we are today, which was um, I started. To, you know, to really understand property, a, a critical part of that is is the finance piece, um, and so that led me into into that into that area. And and again, going to all of those seminars and reading all the books and so much different information out there, Pete, in terms of you know what's what can be done, what can't be done, and and conflicting information and what's the best strategy and all those types of things. So when I started Empower Wealth, it was a story of about how do I consolidate. Um, you know, that and try to bring that into one umbrella operation to allow for the consistency of service and, and helping those people. Fantastic. Well, you've done especially well to come back into the real world after working at Ayers Rock Resort and Hammy Island and <laughs> yes. all of those yes. other places. So, I mean, today we know um, Empower is a huge brand and I think 120-odd staff across the business units. But tell us a bit about the journey and how you grew the brand because, um obviously these days with the podcast and kind of a leading real estate and financial services brand. But how, how did you actually go about growing the business? Yeah, I think well, I think the origin story is always then around the purpose. So there's it's obviously a great book called Good to Great by Jim Collins and and that framed up the story about basically what I wanted to do and what I was passionate about. So it's pretty easy to go to work when you're passionate about helping others. Um, and so 
the vision and and the ability to build um, the business was always around doing the fundamentals well, which was understanding the problems you're trying to solve for the client and then potentially showing them that opportunity in terms of how that that came together. So in the earlier stages, pre, you know, podcasts, pre-YouTube, pre-internet, right? We we did a lot of research, fundamental research that we that we were doing in terms of magazines, books, um, getting that sort of data. These days, you know, we can collate all that data a, a lot more effectively and richly together. But but that was, you know, the journey, you know, this this vision of a single home uh, where you could get holistic advice um, from individual specialists. So you weren't going to get a jack of all trades. You were going to you were going to basically build a team of people around you who really knew their craft and and had the experience to to bring the the people together to solve for the problem and hopefully plan you know plan out that future. Yeah, and uh, as mentioned, the um, the podcast going from strength to strength over the years and the the numbers. Uh, well, a great example of uh, how to snowball or compound your results. Um, the numbers almost exponential over the years. And now, uh, Ben, uh, I guess um, what people always um, want us to talk about is the state of the market, what's going to happen next and all the rest of it. Now, I, I do know as the chair of uh, PICA, the Property Investors Council, you take a lot of interest in things like uh, tax and lending policy and I guess all policies that impact uh, property investors. Um, but before we come on to some of those issues, let's just talk about what's going on in the market, the, the day we're recording, uh, we just had the latest wages growth figures out, and they were pretty underwhelming. Certainly, no price uh, sort of wage price spiral that people have been fearful of. Um, so, what do you think about all the latest market dynamics? Uh, it seems to me that over the past month or two, some of the extreme doom and gloom in the media is tapering off a bit. So, do you see this as kind of just another cycle, or is there likely to be a deeper downturn as interest rates go up? Like you, I, I'm, I do love the numbers in terms of uh, trying to understand the trends and patterns in there. And, and again, like yourself, I've been fortunate enough to to go through multiple cycles over my own personal investment journey, um, which started way back, you know, when I was 23 to buy my first property and and the sort of building out that wealth story now. And I'm, you know, sort of just coming up to 51. You can learn about uh, mindset and confidence and, and and looking at that, but you can also learn a lot about those data trends. So, you know, take for example the the wage uh, in, in index. It's like that that is challenging to me, right? In terms of because I'm looking at um, uh, some other data that's also showing, uh, which the RBA is also you know alluding to, and that is that anyone who's changing jobs is getting significant uplift in their in their particular salaries at this moment in time because there's competition in the market. But obviously, forty percent of uh, the workforce are on contracts, you know, minimum wages and those types of things. So. Uh, or work for government and that. And that's the challenge we have in terms of that's not showing up in the data and that's not moving through. So there is definitely people who are enjoying some higher wage rises, um, but it's not right through the whole system. And I think that's why that's anemic in terms of that wage growth story. But from an inflationary control point of view, it's actually a good news story. Mm. You know, we don't want wages to get too far ahead of themselves because what we don't want to do is build an expectation that that wage story 
that everyone's going to get five or six percent wage growth each year, um, because ultimately that then bakes in um, that higher level of inflation, and that's not good for sustainable long periods of, of growth phases inside each cycle. So I'm a big believer in that two to three percent inflation level as being able to then allow for extended growth periods inside an economy. And I do believe that if we can, you know, obviously get the the genie, the inflation genie back in the bottle without going over the uh, the level that we need to go to in terms of interest rates. So we talk about neutral interest rates being between, say, uh, I don't know, 2.25 and maybe 2.75 would be a neutral setting, uh, neither expansionary or contractionary. Um, if, we're, if we sort of have to land there, I think we'll have to overshoot that in this particular phase and sort of head up towards that 2.75, maybe three. But I'm hoping that the RBA sort of looks uh, and says, well, let's have a pause and let's see what's basically happening. Because I think when we do get that pause, what's going to happen is that sentiment will start to bottom out and start to turn. And I think that will be the the the, the, the smallest shot in the arm that we need. Make no mistake, our cost of living is still going to be higher. Our repayments are going to be higher for those people who have mortgages. But it, but I'd like to think that would land the plane without really any risk of going into recessionary territory. And, and I think that would mean that, you know, where the bottom for property prices are and, and what sort of percentage of, of correction we get might land between that 10 and 15%. But if we have to go over and above to get inflation under control, we could see, you know, higher deterioration in, in, in short-term values. Um, but then I expect that to sort of bounce back relatively quickly when, you know, rates are adjusted back down to those more neutral levels in, say, 23, 24. And, and I then I think people will look back and say, all right, well, that was a 12 to 18-month period that we just needed to keep an eye on. And, and here we are again in terms of uh, with, a, with a fairly good economic story here in Australia, positive migration. And I think people would then say, I, I wish I had a bought in 2022 to early 2023 instead of waiting because now the market's moved and they've missed out. It's been a totally unusual couple of years and a, I guess as a result, a really odd uh, cycle. So I guess look, reading between the lines there, I'm hearing you think that a, a recovery in the housing market probably won't happen until either the Reserve Bank stops hiking or at least people get a, a sense that, that there's a pause coming, so maybe a taper in the pace of, of tightening. Because uh, I guess the, the fundamentals in many respects, immigration's coming back and unemployment's the lowest level in half a century, but I guess people are just, you think, uh, sitting on the sidelines just waiting to see what happens with rates. Is that how roughly how you're reading it? Yeah, I think in what's what surprised me, Pete, in the last couple of uplifts in the property cycle is how quickly it turned. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things we see, and, and you and I, you're a student, obviously, of the of the share market as well. In, in, in the share market, your sort of depth of market of your buyers and sellers, uh, you really need, you know, quite a lot of depth in market to sort of move prices over the longer term. In property, you can have, you know, uh, an area where people are looking in, and over a course of two or three weekends, you, you start to see the other people who are also checking out the same properties that you are, and then you see them putting their hands in their pocket and everyone's a little bit concerned. But it only takes that sort of two to three weekends 
uh, before the market starts moving. So I use the you know example of let's say there's six couples, the investors mix a blend of first home buyers, investors up upsizes downside, and they're all going around and market sentiment's a little concerned. So everyone's keeping their hands in their pocket come auction time. But then all of a sudden, two of them start to compete on one property because. Now, whether that's because uh, the cash rate has now slowed to rather than 50% increases down to 25, um, so I'm just feeling a little bit more comfortable. I'm feeling a little bit more understanding of the changing environment that I'm in. And so those two people uh, compete out and then the rest of us miss out. And then the next week, another couple of the people that I've been seeing uh, you know, from time to time competing against me at these auctions, they're now in the second phase of that next week and, and they're also now thinking, well, I don't want to miss out. And that's how quickly the property market can turn. You don't need depth of market um, to balance the market out. You know, obviously, the deeper the market, the more bidders you have, um, you know, the deeper pockets they have. That's when you get those strong, solid runs that we saw recently, you know, in this particular uplift cycle. So I, so for me, that's like, you know, that's it's all guesswork. You're trying to make a prediction of a base case. My base case, that is if, um, you know, sort of the cash rate gets to around 275 um, then I would potentially like to think that by the middle of next year, we're, we're at the bottom and potentially starting to look at some price growth. If we get to a 3 to 3.25, we've probably got a little bit more of sort of downward pressure and we probably will start to see the second half of next year where we see property prices move a little bit higher. But astute buyers at this time know that that's the best time to buy when others are fearful. So, um, you know, the, the the marketplace will be the marketplace. There will be those people who who can't move past that mindset or who think they're going to pick the bottom when ultimately um, they won't because the bottom will be gone. Coming back to that example that I used before, it was those first people that probably battled it out on that first weekend. Um, and interestingly enough, Pete, what we have seen in some of the auction clearance rates, even though we've seen withdrawals, there is a little bit of a sign there, and I'm interested to see how next weekend goes because we've seen two weekends in a row where where we've we've probably found a bit of the bottom, and we're sort of ticking up a little bit. So so that is also a, obviously a leading indicator that we keep an eye on to sort of see exactly where the sentiment is sitting um, as part of you know our predictive work that we try and do. Do you want to save on buyers agent fees? You could save thousands with buyers buyers. As Australia's most extensive network of buyers agents, we can lock in highly competitive prices. Plus, our national network of buyers agents are some of the best in the business. So get the buyers buyers advantage and talk to us today. Call 1-800-975-051 or visit buyersbuyers.com.au. I think, as you said, the last couple of cycles, there's been this kind of big pent-up demand as various issues have disrupted the market. But then there's suddenly uh, sort of whipsaws when things recover. As you said, it can turn on a dime sometimes. Um, famously, the 2019 election being one of those cases. Um, yeah. And you mentioned getting inflation under control. And I um, wanted to talk to you about a couple of uh, recent policy changes that Obviously, a big yep. part of the inflation story is uh, things like rents. There's other stuff going on in terms of household power bills and energy prices. But there is really a rental crisis in some parts of the country. I saw yesterday Sydney's asking rents are up 20% from a year ago. Sunshine Coast has been worse. It's been probably a 30% increase, very little rental stock. Uh, but there's, there's quite a few policies that have 
uh, really just sort of made life, if anything, harder for for landlords or trickier to actually add to the rental stock. So uh, there's three things in particular I wanted to talk about. Firstly, um, the lending buffers that are in place through the regulator APRA. Then we've had some changes to tenancy laws. And then in Queensland, where I'm based, changes to land tax. So why don't we tackle Mm. those in order? Now, you're an expert or a specialist in uh, lending and broking and what goes on in in that space. Um, So just harking back to uh, last year, I think APRA introduced in October um, effectively a 3% assessment buffer when a new borrower went to take out a loan. So I guess in plain English, a stress test to see whether the borrower could repay uh, in the event of a 3% increase in interest rates, which kind of, I think, made sense at the time because there was a lot of, uh, there was yeah. like a borrowing binge and also interest rates were clearly going to go up. I guess the thing is now, uh, probably by September, we'll have already seen probably 2.25% increase in the cash rate or 225 basis points. So the, the bulk of the tightening is already done. And also there isn't a borrowing binge happening. So uh, I've seen you um, state elsewhere that you think um, we should go back to sort of a 2% floor, such as we had pre-pandemic, and the cash rate was at a similar level today. But what do you see actually happening at the coalface? And uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, this is a big story, right, Pete, because what, what we don't want to see is we don't want to see people trapped in a mortgage jail. And by that, what we're saying is because we've had such a rapid uplift in regards to interest rates, those interest rates then impact the assessment rate or the borrowing power of a borrower. And so what I've been sort of publicly um, putting out there is that, yes, pre-pandemic, we had some certain rules. Um, So I'll give you a quick backstory on APRA uh, for those of you who haven't been familiar. Back back in December of 2014, um, APRA introduced a 10% um, speed limit basically on loans to property investors. Now, then in 2017, they also put a limit in terms of how how quickly you could grow your mortgage book and interest-only loans um, as well. So you couldn't have more than 30% of new business on interest-only loans. So this is coming back to your bigger point, Pete, around the impact on rental, right, and, and how we're, we're here where we are. Now, if anyone looks at the, the rental activity, the, sorry, the investment lending activity between 2017 to pretty much the end of 2000, it fell off a cliff. So those instruments that, that they, uh, both the APRA and the, the Council of Financial, uh, Financial Regulators introduced did their job. They certainly took the heat out of the property market and we were publicly saying that probably there was a bit too much activity from investors in that particular market. And so that, that that played a role. But when you take those investors out of the market, you're also taking the renter out of the market because if we're not buying those investment properties, those private rental uh, accommodations aren't available. And so that reduces the, the stockpile of available rentals. Now, fast forward to the conversation we're having. When the pandemic hit, what we did see is in uh, 2019, APRA uh, basically announced to lenders that they have this loan servicing uh, a ratio where they had a floor rate of 7% or um, 2% buffer was what they was that what they were working on now in July of 2019 they released a paper to ask the question of whether we we want to say let's move away from the 7% fixed and let's now introduce a 2.5% um servicing 
assessment buffer that you would add to that. So they introduced that. And then October last year, on the 6th of October last year, they then came out and said, we want to increase that to the 3% level. Now, the reason for introducing the 3% level was exactly that. Uh, cash rate was down at 1.1% or 1%. Um, it was a risk. There was potentially systemic risk in the system if people overborrowed, knowing that rates will never be that cheap forever. So that's what's happened. But to your point, Pete, and, and what, what you and I have been talking about publicly is that we are now back to a cash rate of point 1.85 with a potential another 0.5 increase as early as September. So we're at then 2.35. Well, that should be enough to say we're nowhere near those emergency settings. And it's only prudent for the lender to be uh, to lenders to be able to lend money appropriately. And we don't want to see, again, borrowers trapped in mortgage jail because those borrowers could potentially shop their business to a new lender, but not if the servicing at the new lender doesn't allow for that. So they become trapped. And then ultimately, they're at the whim of that lender in terms of the interest rate that they charge. If investors could shop around and find a cheaper lender and refinance, and then potentially there's less pressure on putting rents up. Because ultimately, as investors, we don't want to always put rents up. You know, we, we, we're not here to be greedy, you know, uh, empire builders. What we're trying to do, generally speaking, is get a fair return, a risk-adjusted return for our investment. So if we don't have that, you know, pressure coming through, then ultimately we don't need to push rate uh, rentals higher. But because we're getting slammed, not only by the higher interest rates, and we're going to talk about the you know the changes to the rental tenancy acts and also the land tax in Queensland shortly, but because those things are coming through, we we are experiencing as landlords additional costs, and so we need to pass those on. So I'm encouraging APRA to to make the next prudent call, which is to actually adjust that down. Now they have to go back down to two and a half as the first step, but if rates keep going up higher. Um, it only makes sense to me that they adjust back to that 2% assessment buffer because that would be equivalent to where the cash rate was at the time that they had that 2% setting in play. And that just means that there's a little bit more borrowing power for those people who can afford, and it, but it also means you've got mortgage mobility and you're not trapped in that rental jail. Well, that makes perfect sense. And as you said, APRO is happy with a, a 2% floor sort of in the pre-pandemic days. And in fact, the Bank of England recently uh, effectively scrapped the buffer, went down to just one percentage point. Um, but yeah, back in those days, nobody was sort of shouting about this being a high-risk policy setting. You know, historically, mortgage defaults in Australia have been very, very low. In fact, there are a are record lows at the moment. Yes. I think the other thing is... Um, there's a lot of talk about um, housing affordability and Labor's got its help to buy scheme. But if you've got the lending buffer set at 3%, when you've already gone through the, most of the hiking cycle, it doesn't make it very easy for the new entrants to get into the market. In fact, in many cases, impossibly difficult. So um, I guess that's that's one of the, the sort of key issues at the moment. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, the tenancy acts as well and changes to tenancy laws. Now, I've, I've been a, a renter when I was a student and I was a, a renter in the private uh, landlord market when I was working in London. Then I was an owner. Then I've, I've been a rent vester and a landlord. Now I'm an owner, owner again. Yeah. I guess like 95% of the time, the system works pretty well. Uh, not everybody wants to own a property all of the time, me being a good case in point. And I think one of the, the key things is for an economy to grow 
and prosper. What you really need, especially at the moment, is a flexible labour force that can find rental properties where they're needed. And yet, at the moment, it seems to me the pendulum is swinging sort of away from uh, private landlords being able to provide property. So explain to us a bit, bit about the recent uh, sort of proposed changes to Tenancy Acts and what, what are those impacts likely to be, do you think? Yeah, there's a lot going on here, Pete. Um, it, this sort of uh, process has been ongoing and drawn out for a long period of time. And what we always know about any type of government reform and, and what we also need to acknowledge is that some of the reforms that have been introduced, um, one could agree that, you know, it's it's definitely in the benefit of a better relationship between tenant and landlord. So being able to make sure that you provide safe accommodation is a good example of that. You know, actively uh, repair, uh, you know, sort of damaged goods and so forth in an appropriate manner. So there's there's no doubt that like anything, there's, there's extreme cases of greedy landlords and there's extreme cases of tenants acting very badly. Um, but to your point, I, I saw some recent data, and I'm happy to share that with you. 100,000 claims, roughly, or disputes, are settled across all of our councils. Um, you know, in terms of the uh, tribunals, I should say, around Australia. Now, if I use the the latest data from ABS that says around 2.84 million properties are for rent, then effectively 96.5% um, of properties operate smoothly. Right. So we're talking about 3.5% of those uh, properties are in dispute in any one year. Now, again, this is where we get frustrated is because the regulation has ultimately poured uh, in favour, heavily in favour of the, the tenant. And with all of these additional regulations and all these different restrictions, two things are happening. Um, firstly, is that, you know, if people want to play on, if they want to bat on as investors and, and landlords, um, their costs have gone up their compliance costs, their admin costs, their property managers are putting their fees up. Um, every time in a lot of these reforms, there's extra uh, safety tests that have been done. So if you have a tenancy for six months and then you're out of there, the next person that comes in, you've got to do spend a, drop another $500 on a gas uh, you know, test and all of that. So naturally, they are costs, right? So the, the landlord's got to make a decision in terms of how much of those costs that they pass on. Um, and they are doing that right now. They're passing on costs because of higher interest rates. They're passing on costs because of increased compliancy obligations. And they can do that because the market is tight, because the other option is to sell and get out. And so we're seeing evidence of Victoria, especially 133 uh, changes to the to the Act, a huge reform program going on, and, and landlords are voting by selling up and getting out. And so that's resulting in less available uh, tenants, uh, less available rental accommodation and a shortage of tenants. And, you know, we're talking about this is going to get worse, Pete, because, you know, looking at the June numbers of visas to come in for student visas, we saw a record increase in that intake. So where are they all going to stay? Um, and so and then we've got migration. Where are they all going to stay? So we are moving towards a very dangerous situation. And we've got some states and territories who are about to make their decisions in terms of how much reform they do. So Victoria, New South Wales, ACT, Tasmania um, have all made their decision. Uh, Queensland have done part one. Uh, they're coming back for part two in October. That's absolutely going to increase costs. So that's going to be passed on to tenants um, as part of that. And WA have got to make their big decision, um, which we'll hear about soon. And, and what was interesting with the WA story, if I can take some liberties on that one, 
the, the Real Estate Institute of Western Australia actually did an independent research piece on that particular story. And the findings are actually quite shocking in regards to the impact on the rental market in WA, which is already in crisis because of the, the vacancy rates there. But it, it, the, the economic forecasts were this. Oh, no, I'll start with 60% of those surveys said they were likely or very likely to sell their investment properties in the next two years if the proposal to remove the right for a property owner to terminate a tenancy and the proposal to remove the requirements of a tenant to seek consent of the property owner to make modifications to the property. They were the two big issues. 60% would cash out in the next two years. Now, the economic consequences of those are uh, tenants across the state would pay an extra $105 million in rents annually. And the other big big one there was investors would be slugged an additional $142.5 million in higher property management and holding costs. So here's another example of market interference, not letting the market run efficiently. And so we were talking about a market running relatively efficiently when you got 96.5% of harmony between you know tenants and landlords and huge reform being done for that sort of bottom five percent, let's call it, um, in terms of changing the market. Well, these are the unintended consequences. You are going to make the tenants pay more because the cost of running, managing, looking after that property and the compliance costs are going up. So it's only fair that some of those costs will get passed on to the tenant. So unfortunately, great intentions from you know with this reform but the consequences of basically making rents a little bit higher. Absolutely. I think when the when the system works well, what you want is landlords to supply quality rentals for the long term. So you're giving people yeah. security of tenure. We've uh, in our sort of personal property investing, we I guess we've owned property for 26 years, we've never sold one. Um just trying to think of an example. After the global financial crisis, we bought a a property in the home counties in England after the property crunch. And we've had the same tenants there for, what, 13 years or 14 years now. Polish family came over from Eastern Europe. And they've been the best tenants we have ever had. And the rents are exploding at the moment in the UK for, uh, well, I guess you've seen what's happening with the inflation numbers over there heading to, to 13%. But I've got no incentive to increase the rents on them because they've, they've been the best tenants I've mm. ever had. You know, the been fantastic. Um, they've prospered all that time. And I guess that Australia seems to be going down the route of a disincentive to supply quality rentals and security of tenure for, for decent periods of time. And uh, well, anyway, we've, we've covered some of the Well, the well that comes back it. to your point, doesn't it, Pete, about the if you can't provide um, human capital mobility easily, then the economic consequences are material. Right, you know, if you've got projects that you want to start, um, whether that be infrastructure projects, uh, you know, nation building projects, and you can't house those people um, effectively or economically, you know, those projects get delayed, the economic benefit gets delayed, gross gross domestic production uh, suffers, the whole thing, you know, spirals in on itself. So it's absolutely critical. And as you were saying before, not every tenant um, is a forced tenant. There's a lot of, I mean, I, you know, recently rented when we rent, renovated our home uh, for six months in one period, and we've rented quite a lot. And like you, I, when I came out of of, of uh, high school and, and wanted to experience Melbourne, I rented a property for 12 months. So that was by choice. 
So I think there's a lot, there's a narrow minded view that for every rental property that's not available, someone's just bought it and now, now they're going to live in it. Um, and that's just not necessarily true. Now, while we're on the the subject of flawed policies, I've mentioned, I think, on a podcast somewhere before where I come from in England, there's actually quite a lot of um, professional landlords and probably far fewer mum and dad or part-time landlords who just have a random single investment property. And I think part of the reason for that is tax policy. I think in Australia, if you try and grow a property portfolio, now, you guys, uh, tax advisors and specialists and people can structure their investments appropriately so they don't get slugged with land tax. Whereas um, I think one of the things that has stopped professional landlords in Australia, and most people only sort of owning one or two investment properties, is, is the disincentive of land tax. Whereas in the United Kingdom, you can grow huge portfolios without the same issue. So a recent change, though, uh, Queensland, uh, where I'm based in Australia, uh, recent um, land tax changes and quite a rapacious move that hopefully won't be uh, replicated across other states and territories. Um, so, Ben, talk to us a bit about um, what's been proposed in Queensland. What's the potential impact, do you think, on on the market? This is material, Pete. I mean, the, the other governments and territories around the country are sort of saying, are they trading off okay, yes, there's higher costs, yes, it's going to be passed on to the tenant, but the greater good is the tenant gets a safer, better accommodation. I mean, that's that's probably what they're debating in their head. In the Queensland situation, it's an absolute cash grab. Um, it cannot be, uh, you know, sort of mentioned in any other way. So their proposal, um, which is going to be unique in this country, is that if you own a property in Queensland and you own uh, property or land in any other state or territory in Australia, they are going to use the land value of that other property in the other states or other jurisdictions, and they are going to use that to calculate the amount of land tax that you pay. So that's obviously one part. So land tax, usually there's a threshold, and once you go over that threshold, then the state government start charging you annualised tax um, for that property. Now, I have no problems with state governments charging a land tax per se. I mean, obviously, I'm getting the benefits of the society and the investment that goes back in that land. But this is extraordinary. This is basically asking uh, people who have properties in other states and territories outside of your principal place of residence, or if it's a primary producing land, so we want to make sure we're clear on that, that they do the calculation. And on their very own website, the increase is a 332% increase. So their example goes from a, a Queensland-based uh, investor paying $1,950 in land tax and then buying a property interstate. That property increases their land tax from $1,950 to $8,422. That's a $6,472 increase, hence the 332%, $124 a week. Now, make no mistake, Pete, this is a rent tax. This is going to be a rent tax. If there isn't any other justification for passing on some of these costs to tenants, this is it. So, and what's extraordinary about this one is that the landlord who may have properties in other states and territories are going to have to explain to those tenants in the other states that I'm increasing your rent to pay Queensland's land tax because they've now factored in this property that I own interstate. 
I mean, it is totally extraordinary that this rent tax is going to, because it will be passed on. I mean, there is, especially in a tight rental market, and it's going to have different nuanced consequences for each independent investor. So we've we've done some models where we might have a client in our business that has two investment properties in Queensland and one in Victoria. So what do they do? Do they bat on and, you know, they have a 300% increase in land tax that they have to pay to the Queensland government. They'll probably maximise what they can out of the Queensland properties. So the Queensland tenants will probably pay more rent than the others. But if there's a top-up that they need, they're going to actually ask for those other tenants to pay it in the other states. Now, if you're a tenant sitting in Ballarat and you're getting a letter apologising from your landlord saying, um, the Queensland government's increased my land tax by $6,000 in a year, and I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to, just to recover my costs, I'm going to have to charge you an extra $30 a week, and I'm charging my other tenants in Queensland an extra $60 or $70 a week to cover that. It is just extraordinary um, that they would take such a policy with their budgets um, and then pass that through the, you know, through the budget to raise uh, an amount of money which is immaterial of about $20 million is what they're, they're claiming. So the brand damage of Queensland, we've got even clients saying, well, that's it, I'm going to boycott Queensland from a tourism point of view. Like if they're going to, if they're going to take $6,000 of the rental income that I'm getting on and I'm, and, I, and I'm recovering that from my land, I'm not just not going to holiday there because in principle, it just doesn't, you know, pass the pub test. Why would you tax land outside of your jurisdiction to basically, you know, increase your revenue coffers? It's just, it's just a rent tax. And unfortunately, it means that everyone around Australia who's renting could be susceptible based on where their landlords own their property. So it's unprecedented. Um, and it's really an interesting um, policy. And I think, you know, when clearer minds prevail, I- I'm hoping that they will will effectively withdraw this policy, similar to the way in which the Victorian Labor Party coming up to an election year promised a uh, developer tax only to have the developer industry say, well, we're going to we're going to do a marketing campaign that says under Labor, uh, your property is more expensive because of this, uh, you know, developer tax. And so Labor saw that as politically untenable, uh, and so they pulled that threat. Well, I think the Queensland Labor government should also be considering um, just how much value they're going to get out of this in terms of um, introducing this tax that affects every state and territory in Australia based on the fact that, you know, your landlord might have properties around the country. It's extraordinary. We've already got a rental crisis in southeast Queensland, Sunshine Coast. I mentioned uh, Gold Coast, the same to some degree, Brisbane as well, certainly in some parts of Brisbane. It's interesting, indeed, the census always shows that in every other state and territory, the share of uh, rental properties and landlords is broadly the same. Queensland's the only state where there's far more interstate investors and that this could have a quite a serious impact on the rental market um i don't know if this is related but i've just noticed in recent weeks and months uh things like uh units in new farm and the inner west of brisbane and some townhouse development suddenly just catching a bid and i, I don't know if that's to do with people shifting towards um the medium density sector or not but certainly Definitely one to watch. Uh, so, Ben, I, I guess we could talk all day about uh, policy and if uh, you're a man who knows more than anyone else in this uh, space. But let's um, let's wrap up. So we're having this conversation in a year's time. 
sounds like rents will be higher and hopefully by then the Reserve Bank will have tapered off a bit, if not potentially looking at easing uh, monetary policy. What else do you see, let's say, in a year's time, August 2023, um, housing market recovering and um, hopefully the economy on a soft landing? Yeah, I think I think that's the crystal ball that I, that, that I like to look through. I, I think um, what's different about this slowdown is the level of household um, savings that is going to cushion a bit of the blow. Um, and the other critical factor is obviously the unemployment story. So, you know, I don't see uh, systemic risk in the property market because of behavioural economics terminology here, but um, you've got two things going in. There's a loss aversion. Um, so people dig in um, harder. So if they're having, if they're finding it tough to make their mortgage repayments, they've got options to do a repayment holiday or to grab a second job. Um, and there's plenty of second jobs going. So I don't see, you know, uh, all of those, uh, you know, naysayers and and doomsday reports out there uh, that are trying to drum up that uh, that message that that you know there's going to be a, a significant property crash happening in Australia. But I do feel like, yeah, you know, there will be a breather in the property market, which was relatively needed. It was it was pretty hot there for a while in 2021. Um, so I, I just probably think we're getting back to a more normalised market, and and if we avoid the recession and interest rates are, are sitting around that 2 to 2.5%, then people will feel quite comfortable in paying sort of 4%, 5% for their mortgages. Um, and we'll, we'll probably get back to a more normal property market where, where we have a balanced market maybe moving towards a bit of a, um, a market where it might be more of a, a seller's market than a buyer's market. And, and with that, that, that obviously means property prices starting to move in late 2023 is, is sort of a baseline guess. Makes sense. Well, I guess the past couple of years have showed us how difficult it can be uh, to yes. make predictions and the uh, immigration or arrivals figures basically stopped and now suddenly roaring back. So very difficult to uh, predict in real time. Uh, ben, where can people go if they want to find out more about Empower or if they want to check out the Property Couch podcast? Where should people go for more? Yeah, thank, well, thanks for the opportunity, Pete. Look, from my point of view, I'm an educator at heart. I want people to financially transform. So we've written a couple of books. Um, the first one is Make Money Simple Again. So if you go to, we give that a book away for free now. So makemoneysimpleagain.com.au is a great place to start or our other best-selling book, which is The Armchair Guide to Property Investing. You can also get a free copy of that uh, by going to thearmchairguide.com.au or you can check us out at The Property Couch. Fantastic. And I'll actually, uh, after a bit of time in Europe, I'll actually be down in Melbourne in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to some decent coffee. Good Lord, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a shock coming over to uh, the other side of the world compared to coffee down your way. So, uh, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been a privilege to be on this side of the microphone and tap your brains and uh, look forward to chatting again in due course. Oh, and thank you, Peter, for having me on. And if I can say, Pete, from my point of view, you're obviously one of the leading thinkers in this space. And, and anyone who's obviously checking out this content, make sure you continue to keep listening to Pete's uh, views and direction. He is a thought leader in this space. And, and I really enjoy uh, chewing the fat with you all the time when we catch up, Pete. Oh, I'll definitely have you on again with that nice little, <laughs> little plug. <laughs> so uh, thanks, Ben, and uh, talk to you again soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Pete's Property Podcast, powered by Buyers Buyers. Don't forget to subscribe and join us next time as Pete chats all things property with a new guest. And just a reminder that the information provided in this podcast 
is general advice only and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation or needs. You should always consult a licensed professional to discuss your individual personal circumstances.